Section 39 of England, Scotland, Ireland, and Wales. This is the LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The World Story, Volume 10, England, Scotland, Ireland, and Wales. Edited by Eva March Tappan. Section 39 just before waterloo eighteen fifteen by william makepeace thackeray on the fifteenth of june eighteen fifteen a magnificent ball was given at brussels at which the duke of wellington was a guest in the midst of the revelry a courier announced to him that the troops of napoleon had crossed the boundary and were near quarterbras the news quickly ran through the ballroom, through the city. The bugles sounded, the drums beat, and within an hour Wellington and the English forces were on the march. The selection opens while the people of Brussels are still ignorant of the result of the encounter at Quatrebras. There are wild rumors of the coming of the French, and hosts of people are trying to escape from Brussels. Rebecca, the adventuress of the book, has worked upon the timidity of Amelia's brother, Jos, and induced him to pay her an exorbitant price for her horses. George is the husband of Amelia. The Battle of Waterloo took place on the 18th of June. The Editor Though midnight has long passed, there was no rest for the city, Brussels. The people were up, the lights in the houses flamed, crowds were still about the doors, and the streets were busy. Rumors of various natures went still from mouth to mouth. One report averred that the Prussians had been utterly defeated, another that it was the English who had been attacked and conquered. A third, that the latter had held their ground. This last rumor gradually got strength. No Frenchmen had made their appearance. Stragglers had come in from the army bringing reports more and more favorable. At last an aide-de-camp actually reached Brussels with dispatches from the commandant of that place who placarded presently through the town an official announcement of the success of the Allies at Cotabras, and the entire repulse of the French under knee after a six hours battle. The aide-de-camp must have arrived some time while Joss and Rebecca were making their bargain together, or the latter was inspecting his purchase. When he reached his own hotel, he found a score of its numerous inhabitants on the threshold discoursing of the news. There was no doubt as to its truth. And he went up to communicate it to the ladies under his charge. He did not think it was necessary to tell them how he had intended to take leave of them, how he had bought horses and what a price he had paid for them. But success or defeat 
was a minor matter to them, who had only thought for the safety of those they loved. Amelia, at the news of the victory, became still more agitated even than before. She was foregoing that moment to the army. She besought her brother with tears to conduct her thither. Her doubts and terrors reached their paroxysm, and the poor girl, who for many hours had been plunged into stupor, raved and ran hither and thither in hysteric insanity, a piteous sight. No man writhing in pain on the hard-fought field fifteen miles off, where lay, after their struggles, so many of the brave, no man suffered more keenly than this poor, harmless victim of the war. Jos could not bear the sight of her pain. He left his sister in the charge of her stouter female companion, and descended once more to the threshold of the hotel, where everybody still lingered and talked and waited for more news. It grew to be broad daylight as they stood here, and fresh news began to arrive from the war, brought by men who had been actors in the scene. Wagons and long country carts laden with wounded came rolling into the town. Ghastly groans came from within them, and haggard faces looking up sadly from out of the straw. Joe Seedley was looking at one of these carriages with a painful curiosity. The moans of the people within were frightful. The wearied horses could hardly pull the cart. Stop! Stop! A feeble voice cried from the straw, and the carriage stopped opposite Mr. Seedley's hotel. It is George. I know it is cried Amelia, rushing in a moment to the balcony, with a pallid face and loose, flowing hair. It was not George, however, but it was the next best thing. It was news of him. It was poor Tom Stubble, who had marched out of Brussels so gallantly twenty-four hours before, bearing the colors of the regiment which he had defended very gallantly upon the field. A French lancer had speared the young ensign in the leg, who fell, still bravely holding to his flag. At the conclusion of the engagement, a place had been found for the poor boy in a cart, and he had been brought back to Brussels. "'Mr. Sidley! Mr. Sidley!' cried the boy faintly and Jos came up almost frightened at the appeal. He had not at first distinguished who it was that called him. Little Tom Stubble held out his hot and feeble hand. "'I am to be taken in here,' he said. "'Osborne, and, and Dobbin said I was, and you are to give the man two Napoleons. My mother will pay you.' This young fellow's thoughts during the long feverish hours passed in the cart had been wandering to his father's parsonage, 
which he had quitted only a few months before, and he had sometimes forgotten his pain in that delirium. The hotel was large, and the people kind, and all the inmates of the cart were taken in and placed on various couches. The young ensign was conveyed upstairs to Osborne's quarters. Amelia and the major's wife had rushed down to him when the latter had recognized him from the balcony. You may fancy the feelings of these women when they were told that the day was over and both their husbands were safe. In what mute rapture Amelia fell on her good friend's neck and embraced her. In what a grateful passion of prayer she fell on her knees and thanked the power which had saved her husband. There was only one man in the army for her, and as long as he was well, it must be owned that its movement interested her little. All the reports which Joss brought from the street fell very vaguely on her ears, though they were sufficient to give that timorous gentleman and many other people then in Brussels every disquiet. The French had been repulsed, certainly, but it was after a severe and doubtful struggle and with only a division of the French army. The emperor, with the main body, was away at Ligny, where he had utterly annihilated the Prussians, and was now free to bring his whole force to bear upon the Allies. The Duke of Wellington was retreating upon the capital, and the great battle must be fought under its walls, probably, of which the chances were more than doubtful. The Duke of Wellington had but 20,000 British troops on whom he could rely, for the Germans were raw militia, the Belgians disaffected, and with his handful his grace had to resist the 150,000 men that had broken into Belgium under Napoleon. Under Napoleon! What warrior was there, however famous and skillful, that could fight at odds with him? Joss thought of all these things and trembled. So did all the rest of Brussels where people felt that the fight of the day before was but the prelude to the greater combat which was imminent. One of the armies opposed to the emperor was scattered to the winds already. The few English that could be brought to resist him would perish at their posts, and the conqueror would pass over their bodies into the city. Woe be to those whom he found there. Addresses were prepared, public functionaries assembled and debated secretly, apartments were got ready, and tricolored banners and triumphal emblems manufactured to welcome the arrival of His Majesty, the Emperor and King. The immigration still continued, and wherever families could find means of departure, they fled. The 18th was a Sunday, and Mrs. Major O'Dowd, 
had the satisfaction of seeing both her patients refreshed in health and spirits by some rest which they had taken during the night. She herself had slept on a great chair in Amelia's room, ready to wait upon her poor friend or the ensign, should either need her nursing. When morning came, this robust woman went back to the house where she and her major had their billet, and here performed an elaborate and splendid toilet befitting the day. And it is very possible that whilst alone in that chamber which her husband had inhabited and where his cap still lay on the pillow and his cane stood in the corner, one prayer at least was sent up to heaven for the welfare of the brave soldier, Michael O'Dowd. When she returned, she brought her prayer book with her and her uncle, the dean's famous book of sermons, out of which she never failed to read every Sabbath. Not understanding all, happily, not pronouncing many of the words aright, which were long and abstruse, for the dean was a learned man and loved long latent words, but with great gravity, vast emphasis, and with tolerable correctness in the main. How often has my mick listened to these sermons, she thought, and me reading in the cabin of a calm. She proposed to continue this exercise on the present day with Amelia and the wounded ensign for a congregation. The same service was read on that day in twenty thousand churches at the same hour, and millions of British men and women on their knees implored protection of the Father of all. They did not hear the noise which disturbed our little congregation at Brussels, much louder than that which had interrupted them two days previously, as Mrs. O'Dowd was reading the service in her best voice, the cannon of Waterloo began to roar. All that day, from morning until past sunset, the cannon never ceased to roar. It was dark, when the cannonading stopped all of a sudden. All of us have read of what occurred during that interval. The tale is in every Englishman's mouth, and you and I, who were children when the great battle was won and lost, are never tired of hearing and recounting the history of that famous action. Its remembrance rankles still in the bosoms of millions of the countrymen, of those brave men who lost the day. They pant for an opportunity of revenging that humiliation, and if a contest ending in a victory on their part should ensue, elating them in their turn and leaving its cursed legacy of hatred and rage behind to us, there is no end to the so-called glory and shame and to the alternations of successful and unsuccessful murder in which two high-spirited nations might engage. Centuries hence, 
we frenchmen and englishmen might be boasting and killing each other still carrying out bravely the devil's card of honor all our friends took their share and fought like men in the great field all day long while the women were praying ten miles away the lines of the dauntless english infantry were receiving and repelling the furious charges of the french horsemen guns which were heard at brussels were blowing up their ranks and comrades falling and the resolute survivors closing in towards the evening the attack of the french repeated and resisted so bravely slackened in its fury they had other foes besides the british to engage or were preparing for a final onset it came at last the columns of the imperial guard marched up the hill of saint jean at length and at once to sweep the english from the height which they had maintained all day in spite of all unscared by the thunder of the artillery which hurled death from the english line the dark rolling column pressed on and up the hill it seemed almost to crest the eminence when it began to waver and falter then it stopped still facing the shot then at last the english troops rushed from the post from which no enemy had been able to dislodge them and the guard turned and fled no more firing was heard at brussels the pursuit rolled miles away darkness came down on the field and city and amelia was praying for george who was lying on his face dead with a bullet through his heart end of section 39 read by mark cholsky this recording is in the public domain